All right, here's what we're going to talk about tonight. We've been talking about controversial stuff, things that um, that people have questions about. And so tonight we're going to talk about another one of those issues. I heard a story this week about three guys that were together arguing about whose job was most important and whose job was uh, the oldest. And so they got to talking and got some discussion about it. And uh, one guy was a surgeon, and he said, well, listen, my job is the oldest, I know. Because in the book of Genesis, one of the first things that happens is that God creates woman out of a rib from Adam, and that is surgery. So a surgeon is one of the first jobs in Scripture. And guy that was with him was an engineer, and he said, no, 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 I've got you beat on that. He said, well, how can you have me beat on that? He goes, well, it says in the Bible that God brought order out of chaos. And if there's anything that an engineer is supposed to do, it is to bring order out of chaos. And so we were there. God is an engineer. That's his profession. One guy said, well, I've got you both beat. And they said, well, how can you, as a politician, beat the engineer who was there when God brought order out of chaos and the politician said well who do you think caused the chaos in the first place right now here's the thing when we talk about issues like we're talking about tonight it's easy to bring chaos out of order and my goal tonight is to bring order out of chaos and talk through some issues in a very real way but then also to say what does the bible say about it and when we leave here maybe even disagree at some points but feel like we've dealt with an issue all right? So here's what we're talking about tonight. Speaking in tongues. Okay? So, this is one of those issues that people can get, you know, fired up about a little bit either way. So you tell me, when you hear speaking in tongues, what do you think of? Not again? What else? So, unright- so Miss Teresa, being the educator, and she goes right to the, the definition. That's what it is, is... Speaking in an unrecognizable language. Charismatic word comes to mind. Anything else? What do Baptists generally, what has been the tradition of Baptists with speaking in tongues? That's about it right there. Silence. Don't discuss it really. Just we don't do that. Anybody ever been in a Baptist church where they spoke in tongues? Okay. Here's the thing. This is one of those issues that, just to be real honest, as Baptists, we haven't had good dialogue about. We, we even in like on like a, a national scale, uh, two or three, I guess it's been three or four years ago now. Well, it's been longer than that because it was before I, before I came here, and I've been here uh, almost four years. So it was almost five years ago now. The uh, there was. Uh, big controversy because the IMB came out and suddenly said that if you had a private prayer language, you could no longer serve or they wouldn't appoint you as a Southern Baptist international missionary. Now, we had people serving. They didn't take them off the field, but it became new policy that you can't. Well, that was kind of an interesting policy because at that moment, the president of the International Mission Board, Jerry Rankin, had admitted that he had spoken in tongues in a private prayer language. So we had a board of trustees that made a policy that said you could never do this and be a missionary, and yet the president of that organization did. 
right around that time, there was a guy named Dwight McKissick who was a um, Dwight McKissick was a board of trustee member at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he spoke. And in his chapel message, he just talked about his private prayer language. Well, Southwestern puts every chapel they ever do online for alumni like me that have have it where we can get and listen if somebody comes to speak there or just people in general or prospective students. People started to notice his never went up online. And he was a board of trustee member, and then he got forced out as board of trustee member. And the explanations that were given weren't really biblical. They were just, well, this is not what we believe. Well, why? And so there's been some soul searching in the Southern Baptist Convention over the last few years, and that's what I want to kind of us to do tonight is think through some things. Now, the first thing we have to define is what are we talking about here? When I say speaking in tongues, what are we talking about? Well, there's a Greek word that is glossolalia, and it means to speak in tongues. But it's used in ways that are different than we might normally think. One of the places it's used, or one of the ways it's used, one of the ways it's understood, is like what we see in Acts chapter 2. Now, what happens in Acts chapter 2? Or actually, 1 and 2. What happens there? Pentecost happens, and what happens at Pentecost? They start talking, right? But here's the thing. What you see there, the miracle in that instance is in the hearing, not in the speaking. Right? What you get the sense is, and we don't know because it doesn't tell us exactly, but when you read the original, it's almost like, let's just say for a moment that um, I'm standing here speaking to you now like I am, and the Johnsons are here visiting from Russia and speak no English, and the Rush family has all immigrated from Croatia because you're just Croatian. That's just, you know, that's where you are. And we've got some Senegal families at the back, and Johnny Decker just showed up late, so he must be Brazilian, so he comes and speaks Portuguese. And so, you know, we, and as I'm speaking, I'm speaking in a normal English voice, Russian, Croatian, Sengali, Portuguese is being heard. What's amazing about that is, and we've talked about this before, that God didn't take away their accents. He didn't take away they spoke, but they heard them in their own language. And so Acts is not what what, what Miss Rachel just described with this unknown language. That, that's Acts is a known language because people are hearing in their own language. Now, when you get to 1 Corinthians, which if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians tonight, chapter 14. Um, When you get to 1 Corinthians, there it seems to be this unknown, excited utterance that's being discussed. Paul's talking about it, and it seems to be not, I mean, he says you've got to have an interpretation with you. So it's not people are speaking and everyone's understanding what they're saying. This is they're talking in a way that people cannot understand what is happening. And so people say, well, what do you mean by speaking in tongues? And my answer is yes, both. Now, for tonight's purposes, we're going to speak specifically about the excited unknown utterance. Okay? And here's what I want to do. I want to talk about kind of four ways people have thought about it through the years. And then we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're not going to be able to look at 1 Corinthians 14 completely in depth because it is a long chapter with lots of stuff. 
And we're going to look at it and see what it tells us scripturally about it. Now, there are four really positions you can have on this issue. There, there are probably 15, but I'm going to give you four. The first one is called the cessationist point of view. Now, that's one of those words that's hard to say, and cessationists don't like being called cessationist, but they haven't come up with a better word than cessationist. Cessationists believe that all that kind of stuff, healing, prophecy, being able to foretell the future, uh, special miraculous gifts, that all those disappeared, they ceased as soon as the apostles died out. And so you have the apostles. How many apostles did we have? Twelve plus one plus one, right? You had twelve, and then you subtract one because Judas, and they added one back, right? Mattathias, and then who's the other apostle? Paul, called directly by the Lord. But once those 14 were no longer on the earth, the apostolic error ceased to exist, and so did all miraculous gifts. What they say is in Scripture, you don't see these miraculous gifts all the time. You just see certain periods of time where they show up, and they're announcing God's um, kind of kingdom. And that what was happening with the apostles is that they were being confirmed and affirmed in what they were speaking by these miraculous signs and gifts. That Scripture is closed, that it is complete, and that it is sufficient, and that there is no need for miraculous gifts today. And they question if they've always been intended to be used, why did they go away for a while? Okay, is what they say. So that's one point of view. The opposite side of that is what we call the traditional Pentecostal view. Okay? Um, Anybody know when the Pentecostal denomination, churches of the Pentecostal denomination began? How long they've been around? They began in 1901. Okay? The entire Pentecostal movement began in 1901. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. When did this church begin? 1903. Right? So just think about this. The entire Pentecostal movement that is now billion strong almost started two years before this church started. So it's a fairly recent thing. When you go to Brazil, Pentecostal movement is strong. In fact, the fastest growing religion in the world is not Baptist Christianity. It's not even Muslims. It's Pentecostal Christianity in Africa and South America. There will soon be more Christians in South America and Africa than everywhere else in the world combined. The only time that will be surpassed is when China grows to the point that it's growing. We will very quickly be in the North, in the North American Western Hemisphere. We will be a minority when it comes to Christianity of how many percentage and numbers. Okay? But in 1901, there was this revival. Um, out on the West Coast, the Azusa Revival is where it kind of started out in California. And as a part of that revival, suddenly people started demonstrating these gifts of speaking in tongues and healing and things that seemed to have been dormant, according to the church, for a long time. And out of that became a movement that developed into a denomination, different denominations, Assemblies of God and um, Church of God and different Pentecostal denominations, and alongside that, kind of moving alongside of it, were people that called themselves charismatic. Now, 
the unfortunate thing about that is that the word charismatic is a very biblical word, and it just means those that have been gifted by God. And so the truth is, everyone that's a believer in Jesus Christ is a charismatic. Okay, now so if you come, somebody comes in and says, "Ask me, are you charismatic?" Well, I am a charismatic, yes, because I've been gifted by God, but probably not what you are thinking necessarily. And so you have these two tracks kind of moving along, and the Pentecostals getting organized. And you've got a group of people say, we don't want to organize into a denomination. This is just it. But this is kind of the, the general understanding there. The cessationists believe that those gifts stopped. What the Pentecostal traditional movement says is that all gifts of the Holy Spirit mentioned in the New Testament are intended for today. And that every Christian ought to seek it. And the way that you seek it is that you have to have a baptism in the Holy Spirit after your conversion. And that a sign that you have been given the Holy Spirit will be when you speak in tongues. Now, if you technically ask a Pentecostal, does, do I have to speak in tongues to be saved? They'll say, no. Do I have to to be filled with the Spirit? Well, that's the evidence that you are. Okay? Um, I, I grew up in... Uh, Dyersburg, you know, and when I got ready to go to Union, uh, there were th- three guys besides myself that were going to Union from Dyersburg, and we just decided to room together. And there were guys that I played baseball with growing up and knew pretty well, but none of us went to church together. It was kind of an interesting thing. In fact, we uh, going to a Baptist college, I roomed with a Methodist and a Pentecostal. And I remember that my friend that was from Dyersburg that was Pentecostal was having a difficult time kind of fitting in at Union for a little while. And it wasn't because of the religion necessarily. It was just he wanted to be in a certain social group, and he didn't get in. And he uh, just couldn't find a place. You know, I mean, Union is one of those things you think, well, everybody find their place. And it, it can be a very – it can be a place where you don't find where you, you fit. And I remember about halfway through our semester, he came back from uh, – he came back from Dyersburg on a Sunday night, and I'd stayed through the weekend. And he came in, and he knocked on my door, and I was starting my homework for Monday because uh, it was midnight, and it was time to start homework for Monday. It was time to get on that, right? And, uh, you know, now I look back and think, what? In the, if, I, if I'm up till midnight now, there's something wrong, right, with somebody in the house, all right? Myself or one of the kids, there's something wrong. But back then, midnight was, oh, we're getting started. We give me a Diet Coke and... Get my homework ready, and I'm ready to go. So he knocks on my door, and he just knocks in, and he says, I got it. I said, you got it? What'd you get? You know, I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking, great. He brought a video game system back to the to the dorm where, you know, this is pretty cool. What'd you get for us here? He goes, no, I got it. I said, well, what is it? He said, I, I got the spirit tonight. I said, you did? Well, tell me about that. And so we went through the whole discussion. And he was really concerned that I was going to be a preacher and not have the spirit. Because I haven't had, I didn't have that experience. So that's from cessationist to Pentecostal. That, that's down the down the, the line. There's been this new group that's come in, and they call themselves the Third Wave. They say the first wave was the Pentecostal move, but the second wave was the Charismatics that kind of split off and grew out of that. And we are the Third Wave. Um, that's the only name they've ever given themselves, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. All right, but the guy that the guy that started it was a guy named C. Peter Wagner, who many of you may never have heard of, but um, I have heard of a whole lot because he was a father of the church growth movement, and I have to know a lot of his writings for my Ph.D. stuff. But C. Peter Wagner says that all those gifts are still valid, and all believers should try to obtain them, but 
you don't have to have a second blessing of the Spirit. Every gospel presentation ought to have some sort of miraculous sign with it. And everyone ought to want to speak in tongues. But you get the Holy Spirit at conversion. It's not a later kind of thing. So those are the three kind of ones out there that are not where I am in any of them. I am what I call and has been called somewhere else I saw open but cautious. Right? That's a better way of saying I don't understand it all. Okay? Open but cautious. Here's what open but cautious means. I don't think, and we're going to see some of this in 1 Corinthians in just a minute, you can be a serious student of the Bible and completely dismiss speaking in tongues. I don't think you can read the Bible as the Bible's written and say, nope, that can't happen. We're going to read in a moment where it's talked about. And so it was evidently there, and it's never said, well, that stuff's not really happening. I mean, it's listed in the gift list. It's described as a gift. And nowhere does it say, oh, and by the way, when I die, nobody will be able to do it again. Paul or John or whoever go, I know there's some stuff out there, but when we all die, when we're gone and that generation's gone, well, you don't have to worry about it, okay, because it's not going to happen again. On top of that, there is evidence of these kind of things happening. I mean, Ms. Rachel shared a personal testimony. I, I talked to, I mean, I know my friend, and I, I don't think he, he wasn't lying to me when he, thought, when he, when he spoke in tongues or said, thought he did. He, he didn't, and I know him. He was not the kind of guy that was trying to show out. Or, I mean, so there's this, I've read plenty of missionary accounts and stories of going into a new village where the gospel has never been before. And almost like you see in the book of Acts or you hear in 1 Corinthians where as they're going and proclaiming, these, these excited utterances begin to happen and somebody interprets them. And the people there see it not as I understand what he's saying, but this guy's God is God over even what we have perceived to be God. And so you've got that. At the same time, that doesn't mean that I think that every believer ought to be going after it or that it has to be a part of your life to be a believer or that it ought to be a part of what we do on Sunday mornings. Now, my goal tonight is to try to see that in Scripture. What we have to realize is that every time we do something like this, we always bring our personal backgrounds to it. And so there may be times when I read a passage, you go, well, that is not what that says. He is, he, well, he, he's turning that way. He wants to turn it. All right. And I have to admit that there may be times when I read something and say, well, I really hope it says this. But what does it say? All right. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And you tell me, you can look back in your Bibles. What's happening in, what, what, what's Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians 12? Spiritual gifts, I heard that. And what else? There's an extended illustration there. The church, what about the church? It's where he gets the famous parts of the body all in one body, all right? What's 1 Corinthians chapter 13? The love chapter, right? That's what chapter 13 is. Here's what we have to realize. The people in Corinth, I mean, they were in a mess. Anytime you think, boy, I... There's some things just happening either in my church or my Sunday school class or with some friends of mine that, man, there's some things that are just kind of messed up. Not to necessarily make yourself feel better, but realize 
that's not the first time it's ever happened. Just go read the book of Corinthians. All right? I mean, they were in a mess. They had all kinds of divisions. I mean, it was the kind of thing, let's just say that, that I came in, I've been your pastor now for four years, and, and people start yelling, well, I, I, you're okay, but I was here when Dr. Burks was here, and I'm a Dr. Burks man. Well, I'm not a Dr. Burks man. I, I don't go back. I'm John Christian. I'm a John Christian man. So, well, I'm a Roger Abington man. That's who I am. You just say whatever you want to say, but that's who I follow. And he taught it this way, and so I'm going to stick with it. And they were aligned to people. And so Paul comes in and goes, I don't care if you're Apollos or me or even if you call yourself one of, of the ones of Christ, but you're just doing that divisive way. They were divisive. They, they were crazy. Crazy. They, they had people. They couldn't get the Lord's Supper right. And I'm not talking about the deacons went down the wrong aisle when they were passing the bread and the juice out, right? And they had people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Now, I don't know how that happened with Welch's grape juice, you know? I don't know how that could happen. It's Welch's grape juice. But they were getting drunk and overstuffed, and then people were coming in and like, oh, you missed out. We're all out of Lord's Supper tonight. Can't have that tonight. I mean, it was crazy. They had people. The, the picture that you get in chapter 14 and some other places is that you, as let's just pretend I'm standing up and preaching on Sunday morning, that suddenly somebody would pop up and go, Well, that ain't right. I don't agree with that. What do you think over there, Bill? Bill I don't think that's right. Well, in the middle of preaching, they just had people talking back and forth. It's even suggested by the way the text is written that the people that were speaking, their wives were standing up and contradicting them. Now, I. Imagine for a minute me on Sunday morning talking, and Susan stands up and goes, Now, Lyle Larson, that is not right. Now, that may happen at lunch afterwards, but it didn't happen here, right? I mean, then they had these these ladies, which is using the term generously, coming in and wanting to share with the congregation. And just to flaunt their freedom in Christ, they would let their hair down. Now, in that day and time, that was like streaking the church, taking your clothes off and standing up in front of everybody. I mean, literally, when the hair fell, people would be, oh, love covers your eyes. Now, think about what I've described. This was a worship service when they got together. People standing up, yelling at each other, people letting their hair down, guys talking over guys, wives contradicting husbands. They were in a mess. And Paul says, people are going to walk into your service and they're going to be like, what in the world is going on? And in the midst of all of that, people are speaking in tongues and nobody knows what they're saying. Sometimes three or four at a time. It was a mess. And so what Paul does in chapter 12, and make matters worse, I mean, you had people living in sin in the church. Not like... I mean, people say, well, every church has got sin. Well, I know that. Yes, we, we do. But we're talking about a guy that was living with his stepmom and flaunting it in front of the church and coming to church arm in arm every Sunday. And people go, oh, it's so good to see you all here today. And then you had this group of people that were above it all. They were the spiritual people. And when Paul says to think, when you look through the book of First Corinthians, he'll say, no, that all you, the, the actual Greek is all you spirituals. 
we don't say that today because people immediately think of songs, right? Spiritual songs. But all you spirituals out there, you spiritual ones that think you're so good because you speak in tongues and because you can prophesy, that's not the big ticket items here. The, in chapter 12, he says, listen, all that stuff is good, but it's not any better than the person that's got mercy or works hard to clean the things up. You're not any better because you can do that than the person that's just come to Christ. In fact, we all have the same spirit. We all have the same baptism. We all have the same Lord. No gift is greater than the other. You are to serve one another. And the way that you serve one another is to realize we're all part of one big family. And you do your part and I'll do my part. And there's no part that's better. And we need every part and we need each other. And we're going to work together for the glory of God and for the advancement of His kingdom and for the building up of one another. And the only way that's going to happen is when we love. Because when we love, it makes a difference. I mean, if I could be the greatest preacher in the history of the world, but I have not love, I just sound like an instrument that's out of tune. And if you can speak in tongues and make people just cry with the beauty of it, but you don't have love in your heart, then it's worthless. Because love doesn't seek its own. It is patient and it is kind. It doesn't hold people's past over their heads. It always hopes, always trusts, always protects. It never fails. And then in chapter 14, he says, but while we're talking about these spiritual gifts and love, seek the way of love. This is verse 1 of chapter 14. And eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Now, here's something that I think we need to understand. There's this idea out there that, that God, when you... When you accept him as your savior, that that he immediately gives you your spiritual gifts and that you're set for life. Well, you accepted me at the age of nine. Here's your spiritual gift package. That's yours for life. Paul seems to suggest we can actually ask God to develop spiritual gifts within us and to add to what we have. That doesn't mean that he takes away. It just means that he changes as we grow. We, we don't have to be, well, when I was 15, I took a spiritual gifts inventory, and it says that my spiritual gift is mercy, so that means my spiritual gift is mercy for the entire rest of my life, and I don't need to worry about anything else. Paul says, seek them, figure them out, develop them, pray God will help you, especially the gift of prophecy. Verse 2 says this, For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters ministry, mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongue, unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. I want to tell you three things I think are in this passage of Scripture and, and, and how that informs how I view this topic. And the first one is this. I don't think there's any way scripturally you can make a solid case or close to it that it is required as evidence of salvation or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to say you have to speak in tongues. In chapter 12, Paul asks all these kind of um, rhetorical questions. Uh, They're starting in verse 29. There are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all work miracles. Do all have gifts of healing? Now, the obvious answer there is people are going to go, no, 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 everybody's not an apostle. No, people aren't prophets. No, no, everybody's not a teacher. 
Then he says, well, does everybody speak in tongues? And the answer, no. So there's, Paul didn't think, well, he didn't come back and say, well, if you don't, that's a problem. It's obvious that this is one of those things that some people, according to Paul, may have and some people may not. He even says it here. He says, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. The idea there is not everybody does. But he doesn't ever say it. And those of you that don't are not believers or don't have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he says tongues, I mean, if you wanted to go with this, the real, the real level is prophecy. Now, prophecy here doesn't necessarily mean being a fortune teller. It means being able to tell people what God is speaking at the moment. He who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues. Unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. What's interesting there, and we'll get to this in just a moment. What he says, unless he interprets, the idea there is, unless he interprets what he himself said, that's not, I'm supposed to speak in tongues and I need to find somebody to interpret for me. That is, I relay what I just talked about. All right? Chapter 14 continues. Paul says, what, what good would it be if I came to you and spoke in tongues? What, unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction, even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, of the flute or harp, how do you know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Um, you, ever, uh, you ever play a game or had a time when you've got a song in your head and you're trying to communicate it to somebody else? Okay. Now, for some people, that's not a problem because you can sing. But for some of us that have monotone disease, that becomes a problem. Susan can never figure out what I'm trying to. The other night, I remember, we, I can't remember what it was, where we were, but I was trying to say, you know that song. The, she goes, well, what does it sound like? Well, you know, the, well, I know it doesn't sound like that, whatever it sounds like. Paul says, listen, if I, I'm speaking in tongues and there's no, they can't tell what's going on, it's not going to be any help. Verse 13. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. There is this essence, Paul is saying, that in his life, what he wants are deep experiences with the Lord, but then he wants the ability to help others see God through whatever God is doing in his life. So whether it's speaking in tongues or whether it's singing in the Spirit, and I don't really understand what that means except to know that you know, there are just times in my life when I'm just overjoyed with what God is doing or I'm so troubled with what's happening in my life that when I go to the Lord, I can't use words. It's just like my soul sings or cries out. I just try, you know, I need help or thank you or praise if you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving? By the way, that's the biblical understanding of why it's important to say amen in worship. You see it right there. If it, it, amen, right, right, Cliff? Amen just means you understand what's going on and you agree with your brother. That's what it means. Right on. Some of you in the early service, Adam Cunningham led a couple of weeks ago, said he goes, he, he sometimes leads worship in uh, places that it's non—it's not non-Christian. It's a church, but they're dealing with people that haven't been believers long, or they come from backgrounds of not having church. And he said they don't have a clue what "Amen" means. And so I say it's just like "Right on." So he said sometimes they'll yell out "Right on." That is kind of what it means. 
better than the King James verily, verily, right? I don't remember. Oh, there I am. You may not you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. And this is verse eighteen. Now, here's the second thing I want to say. First of all, it's not required as evidence. But here's the second thing. The Bible speaks of tongues as a valid spiritual gift. Who's talking in this passage here? Who's writing this? Paul. Paul, pretty good guy. I mean, would you consider Paul to be one of those guys that was a follower of Jesus Christ? Christian? We'd be fine having him in our church to speak sometime. Think so? I mean, imagine if Paul came up and said, hey, by the way, I'm the Apostle Paul. I'm back, and I want to be your pastor this week. And uh, we're going to kick that loud guy out, and we're going to have y'all and Y'all clambered over yourselves to vote real quickly. He goes, oh, before we vote, by the way, let me tell you something. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Woo, wait a minute. That that wasn't on your resume there, Paul. You didn't let us know that. I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. Now, there are people that try to say, Paul's just kind of saying speaking in tongues isn't a big deal. See, I'm just here, but it's hard to. There's no Greek construction other than Paul saying, "I give thanks to God that I speak in tongues more than you do." Now, here's what was going on in Corinth in part. There are people in Corinth saying, "We don't have to listen to Paul anymore. We've moved past him. He was here for a while. He helped us get to a certain point, but we've moved past that now. Paul doesn't even speak in tongues. He's not that spiritual." We're more spiritual than him. We've done the prophecy. We've done the healing. We've done the speaking in tongues. Paul, he doesn't do any of that. He, did he do that while he was here? No, well, then he doesn't do it. And Paul says, two things we learn from this is, first of all, he did it. And second of all, he probably did it where they didn't know he did it. In the church, this is another reason we think that. I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So what we have here is, which we're going to move to this in a moment, we have Paul admitting that he was a tongue speaker. And I don't think that just means in other languages here. I think that means in a private way to the Lord. In fact, if you look at verse 39, there's this interesting little thing. Chapter 14, verse 39. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. I grew up in a Baptist church. I grew up First Baptist Church, Dyersburg, Tennessee. I went to Union University. I went to chapel twice a week. Well, they had chapel. Twice a week at Union University. I went to a lot. You had to go. You had to go to twenty-one a semester to get credit for the semester. I was in seminary before I remember hearing a passage that the pastor quoted that verse. Now we're people of the Bible, right? As Southern Baptists, we hold firm to the Bible, and what that means is we believe the Bible. And to quote from our juris, jurisprudence system. We believe the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible when it comes to being authority of telling us about Jesus Christ. And yet, isn't it amazing how we can kind of gloss over or look around or 
dance around. Well, not dance because we're Baptists, but walk around, even though that's in the Bible too. There's another one that I never heard described. Things that we may not always agree with. I heard C.S. Lewis, a quote from C.S. Lewis. Um, I used this yesterday. I got to speak at the Nashville Rescue Mission, their board meeting. C.S. Lewis, I read a quote from his last week that said, Everybody thinks forgiveness is a grand idea until they have someone to forgive. And sometimes as Baptists, we like to think ourselves as people of the book until we read a part of the book that we're like, Ooh, we'll, just, we'll just sweep that one under the rug. We won't tell our kids or our youth. They'll figure that out when they get older. Paul says here, don't forbid speaking in tongues. So Scripture teaches that it's a valid spiritual gift. Now, what does that mean? Well, Miss Rachel, you kind of hit part of it on the head. That means when someone comes up to us and starts talking about their experience of speaking in tongues, we're going to go, whatever. That, that doesn't happen. They, they just, they don't know what really happened to them, but it couldn't have been that because that doesn't happen. We don't automatically dismiss it. That, that doesn't mean that everybody that ever says they speak in tongues is valid in what they say. But we don't just say, well, that can't happen. We give people the benefit of the doubt. We, we also don't feel intimidated if that happens. I asked this question at 4 o'clock. Why do you think Baptist, if that's what it says, why do you think we are so uncomfortable with it? Let me ask you that. Why do you think we're so uncomfortable with this topic or this subject? We haven't been subjected to it. So things that we've never seen or experienced, we are uncomfortable around. Anything else? We don't, yeah, we don't understand it. We don't, we've never experienced it ourselves or, or done it. We just kind of skip over that one. How many of you got, you know, we do this. Anybody ever taken a spiritual? How many of you got the gift of healing? Well, yeah. I mean, I, well, I don't, I don't, I don't want to talk about that one. How many of you got, mer- oh, I've got mercy. I've got help. i got leadership. i got prop. How many of you got, oh, we don't do tongues. We don't do that here. So you can't have that one here. But we can do, we, we just, we don't do it that blatantly, but we just kind of, walk around it. Even like I talked about at the beginning, you know, when we have national leadership that suddenly starts talking about it, it's like, oh, let's just make a policy real quick. We don't do that in the Southern Baptist Convention. We don't do that. Well, why? Well, we just don't, don't do that. Cliff, are you going to say something? <laughs> yeah. Because it's not a Baptist gift. And I don't. I never have. I haven't. And and I'm 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 perfectly fine saying I haven't. But I've known people that have. That doesn't mean that I'm less spiritual or that they're less spiritual. Um, it's just one of those topics that we just haven't fully grasped or gotten our heads around and figured it out. I think there are two main reasons that, as Southern Baptists, we're the, these are when I'm thinking good of being Southern Baptist and not just because we want to be different and we don't want to be like them or them. And so, well, we don't do that because we're Baptist. Two main reasons. One is what you hit on, Miss Hilda. We don't know what to do with it. We don't. We've not experienced it, and so we're just, you know. And what goes along with that is, in some ways, if it started happening, well, well, I don't do that. And if we let it happen, well, I don't do that. Does that mean they're more spiritual than me? Does that mean, or am I more spiritual than them? Or you start getting in those kind of comparisons, and we don't want to handle that. It's just easier to say no. And the other thing is, it's something that seems uncontrollable. And we like control. 
I've joked about this with y'all before, but I still remember um, when we went to two services, we, we weren't printing the bulletins. We just put up little slips of paper. I mean, you know, small slips with the order of worship. I can't remember for which one it was. I think it was for both. We just swapped them out. And we've done that for two weeks. And on the third week, we didn't put it out. And we had ten people before I got in here ask me, how are we going to know what we're going to do this morning if we don't have that sheet of paper? We always have that sheet of paper. Well, the thing is, it's we like... I, I, it's, it's funny because I don't sit up on the platform here, but I have... And I've been at churches where I sat up on the platform, either guest speaking or pastoring or working on staff. And if, if for time or the way the Spirit leads or just flow of the service, we decide that we're going to skip a hymn or we're not, it says we're singing verse 1, 2, and 5, and we sing verse 1 and 2, and we don't go to see people's faces. What are they doing? Like, like it just, you know. So it, we like control to know what's happening, what's going on next. And, and there is a sense of orderliness that ought to be in worship. So I'm not saying that it just ought to be like Corinth where everything's going crazy. But tongues is one of those things we don't know how to control. And most of us, if we're honest, it speaks to a deeper issue. Now, I'm not saying that all of you need to go out here tonight and start praying God will give you the gift of tongues. What I would advise you to do is ask whether you're okay with God taking complete control of your life, even if that means you get out of control. Because it may speak to a deeper issue of control. There is. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I I agree with that, Ms. Hilda, but I think there also, if you look in Scripture, there are times when you have to let God tear down the structure and just you live through Him and whatever that means. Let it happen. And so, no, probably not. And I'm not saying, here's what I'm saying. I'm about to tell you in a minute that I don't think it ought to be done in worship and why I think that. Okay? He was not. Now, you, you, you've probably seen this, Miss Rachel, where somebody put up Paul's resume. Would you accept this guy at your church? And they put up that out of Second Corinthians where he talks about being beaten and shipwrecked and jailed a few times and speaking in tongues. And people thought he'd never get past the first day of committee, right? Now, here's the thing. I think, and Miss Teresa, you may correct me here, but I think we did talk about this in, in uh, my interview. And I, I, I don't know. You may, you were, at, yeah. And there, Al and I talked about it. I know because Alan knows all those key things that are going on in Southern Baptist life. So I got asked about every controversial issue in Southern Baptist life and where I was at the moment. Um, and, and my and what I said, what said to Alan, and what I say now, is I have personally never spoken in tongues. I don't have a private prayer language. But I can't say from Scripture that it's unbiblical to do so. And the Lord may at some point do that. But I don't believe, and based on what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, that it is acceptable to bring that into the assembly and to disrupt what is happening in worship with that. What I think you bring to the assembly is like Paul talked about, what the Lord showed him or taught him through the experience, and you can share that. Ms. Joan? Right. Well, and here's the thing. 
Ms. Joan, I would, I would agree with that statement. But it was dividing the church here, and he didn't, t- and he didn't say, okay, I want everybody to stop and not ever talk about it again. He did. Let's build up the church. And he says that speaking in tongues only edifies yourself unless you bring the interpretation. And so that's why I think Paul is very clear that this is not something that needs to be happening among other things. I mean, he'll talk in other things in here, things that, uh, um, you know, I mean, if you look in verse 26, what then shall we say when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or interpretation. But you get the sense it's a very loose environment, okay? They all came together and kind of like uh, we used to do this in youth sometimes. Anybody got something they want to share? Or maybe you do it in Sunday school. Anybody got anything they want to share? Well, I got a song I want to share. Well, okay, well, come on. Let's sing that. He said, all those must be done for strengthening the church. And then he does say this. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak, one at a time. So he's saying, don't, that's not your whole service. You're not everybody speaking in tongues. And someone must interpret. And you can take that original language. I'm not trying to do... Uh, scriptural calisthenics or acrobatics here, you can take that original for that to say you should come at one time and you must bring the interpretation. The, that It's not just someone must be there that you walk up, you speak in tongues, and that person says, okay, this is what he really just said. But that you bring your interpretation there. Then he says two or three prophets should speak and others wait carefully. And if revelation comes and sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For if you can prophesy in turn, I mean, you get the sense here, I mean, what Paul considers orderly is not what we consider orderly. Orderly for us is having it scripted out, talked about. He says if Lyle's up there speaking and somebody says, I've got a word from the Lord, then Lyle stops and they stand up and they share their word and they sit down and Lyle starts back. Okay, So that tells you that it was mayhem going on there. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets of God. It's got a disorder but of peace. And then it says this, which... If you take it like some people want to say it, we've broken here tonight. As in all the congregation, the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. Right? I didn't speak on that tonight. I'm just reading it, all right? I didn't comment on it. I will comment on this. I will say this, that that word women there is usually used in relationship of a wife. And it's that's why I said earlier the thing about that husbands and wives were contradicting each other, and which gives credence to, then she must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their husbands at home. And so that kind of thing. Susan hears something in the sermon and she goes, you better not ever say something like that again. You know, that she doesn't stand up and say it in the congregation when we get home or eating dinner. Oh, today was great. It was great except for this one little thing, Lyle, all right? Talk about it in that context. Um, Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's good. <laughs> Did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone's a prophet or spiritual, get let him acknowledge that what I'm writing is the Lord's command. If he ignores it, he himself will be ignored. He's saying, listen, you've got to listen to my instruction. And then he does that. Be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking, but everything should be done. And so here's where I come down on all of this. It's not required for evidence of salvation. But you can't deny that biblically it talks about it as a valid gift. Do I understand all the ramifications of that? No. Am I bringing some of my Baptist background to bear when I read Scripture about it? Yeah. But I still, even as I've examined it and looked at it and thought about it, 
I don't think it has a place in the assembly as you come together because of this disruptive nature of what would happen. Now, that doesn't mean that I haven't had conversations with people in this church and in my previous church who have had private prayer languages and they talk to me about what the Lord revealed to them through that and that I go, oh, no, he didn't. That didn't happen. I don't invalidate it. But that doesn't mean that it's okay to be disruptive for the entire congregation. We didn't read it, but it's in here that Paul says, listen, if you if, if somebody walks in off the street and you're doing that, they're going to go, what in the world is happening here? They're not going to be able to hear clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right? So hopefully tonight we brought some order out of chaos, not chaos out of order. And the reality is we probably landed somewhere in between.